0: Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1,121, with a release and air date of Saturday, August twenty-second, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1,121 of This Week in Amateur Radio. An international amateur radio union working group announces a new HF Digital Mode band plan review. A new contest for portable stations that promises to level the playing field will debut in October. Section manager elections are announced in the Puerto Rico section and others. Amateur radio operators up and down the East Coast stood ready for Hurricane Isaias throughout the storm's East Coast visit. The Arecibo Observatory is still assessing damage to its antenna system. An amateur in Illinois pleads guilty to porn charges. Enthusiasm for the upcoming International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend remains undimmed. And we will tell you more about that new app for your digital device that can identify digital modes on the HF bands. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer the question, what is a GPU, and why do we need graphics cards? And we'll take a look at the current state of robocalls and spam. Australia's own auto shop, VK6FLAB, will be channeling RTTY. Our own amateur radio historian Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill talks about the state of amateur radio in the year 1978, and will also talk about a few things that were banned by the FCC that year. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell you how to be successful at tower-mounted electronics. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from
1: our headquarters studio here in Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from the heart of downtown Syracuse, New York, in Armory Square,
2: I'm Chris Perine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our facility atop Sand Hill in the
3: beautiful Catskill Mountains of New York State, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where Mother Nature is warming up again this week, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR.
1: 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news. Begins now. Leading off our news this week, an International Amateur Radio Union, or IARU, working group has been formed to develop solutions to reduce congestion within very popular mode segments while preventing mutual interference between incompatible modes as much as possible. With more details, here is Steve Ford, WB8IMY,
4: reporting from ARRL Headquarters in Newington. The working group includes representatives of the three regional band planning committees, marking the first time the IARU three regions have joined together to directly coordinate band planning efforts. The IARU says this approach to band planning has been generally keeping pace with the evolution of amateur radio operating, but the explosive growth in HF modes, particularly FT8, has led to a perceived overcrowding of HF digital mode band segments. The new working group has already had fruitful discussions with the WSJT Development Group led by Joe Taylor, K1JT. Additional discussions, including with other HF stakeholders, will be held as part of a fundamental review of different HF digital modes and how they can best be categorized and arranged to share the limited spectrum available. Because
1: frequency allocations and amateur operating interests vary in different parts of the world, the development of band plans and voluntary guidelines on the use of the spectrum that is available to radio amateurs is a responsibility of the three IARU regional organizations, the IARU explained in announcing the working groups. Each of the three regions has a band planning committee to focus on this work. In recent years, moves have been made to bring the regional band plans into alignment wherever possible. Final approval of any band plan revisions typically occurs during regional conferences of IARU member societies held every three years on a rotating basis. While the proposed band plan revisions will have to be approved by member societies in each region, Recent administrative changes mean that revisions can be implemented without having to wait for the regional conferences. This effort closely follows a recent move by the AWRL, which has asked the Federal Communications Commission to allocate a portion of the HF band specifically for digital use. The three IARU regions have established a band planning committee with representation from each region which is working to establish allocations that are aligned with one another around the world. There will be a review of the different digital modes using HF and members will study how these modes can share the limited space in the spectrum. IARU Secretary Dave Sumner K1ZZ noted that the cooperation of the three regions in a dedicated effort to coordinate band planning is unprecedented in the history of the organization. Amateurs can follow the working group's progress through the IARU member societies and their respective IARU websites all of which are accessible via
2: the main International Amateur Radio Union webpage. A new amateur radio contest for portable operators, the Fox Mike Hotel Portable Operations Challenge will debut October 3rd and 4th. With more details on this exciting new contest, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. The
4: event is aimed at leveling the competitive playing field between fixed stations and portable stations. Scoring for the challenge, based upon a kilometers per watt metric, will be handicapped in favor of the portables. The contest is the brainchild of Frank Howell, K4FMH. Sponsors include the National Contest Journal, an ARRL publication, but the challenge will not be an official NCJ or ARRL contest. Other sponsors include the UK DX Foundation, the Hellenic Amateur Radio Association of Australia and the South African Radio League. According to the contest rules, scoring will be calculated using the distance between stations in kilometers divided by the power output in watts. Fixed stations will compete against portable stations on 80, 40, 20, 15 and 10 meters. Allowable modes include phone, CW, and digital. For the 2020 event, the number of transmitters concurrently in use will be restricted to two. Portable stations may not make use of permanently installed amateur radio equipment or facilities, but may use commercial
2: AC power. National Contest Journal's role is to encourage hams who don't contest to give it a try, NCJ editor Dr. Scott Wright, K0MD, said. It will encourage activity by operators who are limited by real estate and do not have full-blown contest station. Events like this stimulate more interest in contesting, and this will have an international scope to give chances to snare some new DXCC entities. I think the Portable Operations Challenge Steering Committee, consisting of both veteran DX contest participants and some of the best portable operators in the world, has come up with something worth giving a go, Howell said. With the scoring metric, it's more about radio sport than radio gear. Remember that the exchange is call sign, station class, P or Q, consecutive serial number, and four-character grid square. You can contact Frank Howell, K4FMH, for more information.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
6: Challenger Rene Fonseca, NP3O, has been elected as ARRL, Puerto Rico Section Manager, defeating two other candidates including incumbent Oscar Resto, KP4RF. For details on this and other Section Manager elections, we go to League Headquarters where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report.
4: An ARRL Life member, Fonseca, is returning as section manager, having served two previous terms from 2012 to 2016. His new term begins on October 1, 2020. The Puerto Rico section manager election was the only contested election in the summer round of section manager elections. In Minnesota, Bill Mitchell, AE0EE of Minneapolis, will become the new section manager this fall. Mitchell was the only nominee when the nomination deadline arrived in early June. Incumbent Skip Jackson, KS0J, chose not to run for a new term after a 16-year run that began in 2004. In North Dakota, Richard Budd, W0TF, will begin a new two-year term of office after being appointed in June to succeed Nancy Yoshida, K0YL. The following incumbent section managers ran unopposed and were considered elected. Chuck Motes, K1DFS in Connecticut, Dan Marler, K7REX in Idaho, Scott Yonley, N8SY in Ohio, Kevin O'Dell, N0IRW in Oklahoma, Barry Porter, KB1PA Southern Florida, Fred Kleber, K9VV in the Virgin Islands, and Laura Muller. N2LJM for Western New York.
6: In the Puerto Rico section manager election, Fonseco of Fajarado received 85 votes. Juan Zapalda Mercado, KP3CR, garnered 48 votes. And incumbent section manager Oscar Resto, KP4RF, got 31 votes. Resto has been Puerto Rico's section manager since 2016. All section manager election ballots were counted on August 18th at ARRL headquarters.
3: In a hurricane season now predicted to be worse than originally thought, hurricane and sometimes tropical storm Isaias was an opportunity for amateur radio volunteers along the U.S. eastern seaboard to exercise their preparedness. The Hurricane WatchNet initiated two sessions, totaling more than 50 hours, to track Isaias as it approached landfall. In Southern Florida, Section Emergency Coordinator John Wells, W4CMH, said Indian River County Amateur Radio Emergency Service had operators at three shelters and a few clients housed overnight on August 1st. St. Lucie County went to Level 1 full activation on August 1st, but no shelters were opened and no ARES members were deployed. St. Lucie County A.R.E.S. was operational from a remote location, although they were prepared to staff the radio room at the Emergency Operations Center, Wells said. Northern Florida A.R.E.S. was never called up, but members did monitor the situation. We are still early in the season, and I hope it will be a quiet year, but time will only tell, said Northern Florida SEC Carl Martin, K4HBN. The New York City Long Island section had a lot of downed trees and wires across the whole island, NYC Long Island section manager Jim Mize, W2KFV, reported. ARES was in standby mode for the Red Cross and other served agencies. Many clubs had information nets helping people to find needed supplies. Power was lost for a time in some areas. All is well for the most part in southern New Jersey, Section Manager Tom Praser, N2XW, reported, We were inundated with power outages. We activated Skywarn and made reports to NWS Mount Holly. Many trees and tree limbs are down, and there was a great deal of activity on the repeaters. Delaware SEC Dave Scott, KC3BEJ, reported nearly five inches of rain in the northern part of the state, Areas of central Delaware around Dover Air Force Base and southern Newcastle County got a good punch in the nose with several confirmed tornadoes, he said. Several tractor-trailer trucks tipped over on Route 1 in southern Newcastle County, and some 60,000 people statewide lost power. There was no call for amateur radio assistance from any state, county, or municipal emergency management authorities, Scott said. Most of our regular repeaters remained fully operational. An emergency frequency of 3.905 MHz allowed good communication with Southern Delaware. And now, with more on amateur radio's response to Hurricane Isaias, we go to our own Chris Perine, KB2FAF. Chris? Thanks, Will.
1: Storm Isaias moved rapidly through the eastern and coastal areas of Maryland, Maryland, D.C. Section Manager Marty Pittenger, KB3MXM, told ARRL. From onset to conclusion, tropical storm conditions lasted approximately 12 hours. Two Maryland counties more than 100 miles apart received tornado damage, while high wind-driven rain soaked much of the region. Pittenger reported the MDC section was in touch with a regional Red Cross representative and state emergency managers, and our Ares volunteers maintained awareness. Hospitals and the health department in Prince George County were advised that Ares was on standby for them. Eastern New York saw Isaias as a tropical storm that came directly up the Hudson Valley from the greater New York City area, said Section Emergency Coordinator Dave Gallatly, KM20. On August 4th, the National Weather Service in Albany issued a tornado watch for mid and upper Hudson River Valley counties and a SkyWarn net was initiated on a regional repeater. Two more tornado warnings, several flash flood warnings, and a high wind advisory were issued before the net shut down. Radio amateurs filed multiple reports of flash flooding, road closures, and wind damage. Record-setting rainfall was reported across the forecast area, gallantly added. Aries volunteers in the Eastern Massachusetts section supported the National Weather Service Norton Office's Skywarn program, with winds gusting to 70 miles per hour, leading to downed trees and power lines. Just to our west, conditions were significantly worse, Eastern Massachusetts SEC Rob Macedo, KD1CY, reported. The NWS Norton Skywarn program encompasses neighboring AWRL New England sections. Connecticut had a top five event for total number of power outages, Macedo said, noting some 700,000 customers without power. Ares and Skywarn teams in Connecticut and Rhode Island collaborated on damage assessment. Ares members in Vermont, a state not typically associated with tropical cyclones, initiated VHF and HF nets to share information on conditions. Participation by Ares and RACES members was high reported SEC Kathy James and Q1B. It was clear, however, that storm conditions were not as bad as predicted. We pause for stations along the
0: network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
2: The Intrepid DX Group has announced the winners of its first annual Youth Dream Rig essay contest. We received over 60 essays from young amateurs from all over the world, said Intrepid DX Group president, Paul Ewing, and 6 pse The essays were unique in thought and very well articulated. Extra points were given for proper grammar, punctuation, and spelling. Most of the essays gave unique perspectives on how to reach out and connect with the youth of today. We will be sharing those ideas in subsequent postings. With a listing of all the contest winners, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from ARRL headquarters. The first place winner and recipient
4: of an ICOM IC7300 transceiver is Faith Hannah Lee, KD3Z. She will also receive a vertical flagpole antenna from Grayline Performance Antennas, a deluxe headset from Heil Sound, a PowerWorks switching power supply donated by Steve Jones N6SJ, and a QRP Morse Nano Key from Gigaparts. In second place was Charlie Meadows N4VTI, who received a Yaesu FT65 handheld transceiver. In addition, he'll get a $50 DX Engineering gift card from David Jorgensen, WD5COV. Patrick Gothrop, W9GGG, was the third place winner and recipient of a Baofeng handheld transceiver. He will also receive a $50 DX Engineering gift
2: card from Jorgensen. Having read over 60 essays this week, We can tell you that our youth are full of great ideas and they are brimming with enthusiasm to keep our hobby alive well into the future, Ewing said. The Intrepid DX group will publish several of the essays on its Facebook page. Thank you to all of the youth participants for helping us to make our first annual youth essay contest a success, Ewing said. Let's do this again next year. The Intrepid DX Group is a 501c3 nonprofit organization devoted to promoting amateur radio and providing STEM education to developing countries. An Illinois amateur radio operator
6: and a former longtime Boy Scout leader has pleaded guilty to trafficking in child pornography. Milton Forsberg, K9QZI, has been indicted on the charges in November of 2019. He pleaded guilty in federal court in Urbana, Illinois and under a plea agreement worked out between his attorneys and the assistant U.S. attorney, the 80-year-old man will serve a prison sentence of six and a half years and pay a special assessment of $10,000. According to published reports, Forsberg had been affiliated for more than 40 years with the Boy Scouts. The case against him opened and grew after police received charges in September of 2019, saying he'd sexually abused a
3: 13-year-old boy in 1965. James Armstrong, NV6W of San Jose, California, has been appointed to the post of Santa Clara Valley Section Manager following the untimely death on July 28th of incumbent Bill Ashby, AA6FC, just four weeks after he took office. An ARRL Life member, Ashby, also of San Jose, was 66 and the only nominee for the position when nominations closed in March. Ashby had earlier served as the affiliated club coordinator from 2007 to 2010. Armstrong will fulfill the remainder of the term, which expires on June 30, 2022. His appointment by ARRL Radio Sport and Field Services Manager, Bark Janke, W9JJ, followed consultation with ARRL Pacific Division Director, Jim Tiemstra, K6JAT. Armstrong served as an assistant section manager in the Santa Clara Valley section since 2013. A ham for more than 40 years, Armstrong also holds a second-class radio telegraph operator certificate, a general radio telephone operator license, and a GMDSS radio operator maintainer license, all with ship radar endorsements. The Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico is still trying to
1: solve the mystery behind the accident that knocked its reflector dish off the air this month. More than a week after a structural cable snapped and damaged the reflector dish at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, halting all observations, the mystery remains as how it happened. The space research facility's work concentrates most prominently on deep space, planetary exploration, asteroid characterization, and gravitational waves. It is also home to the Arecibo Observatory Radio Club, KP4AO. According to several press accounts, the broken cable created a 100-foot-long gash in the giant reflector dish, shutting the National Science Foundation facility and halting all operations at the observatory, which is managed by the University of Central Florida. Shortly after the cable broke on the 10th of August, the University of Central Florida said that it would take about two weeks before observational activities could return to operation. A spokeswoman for Francisco Cordova, the observatory's director, said the team assigned to assess the cause is still studying the damage.
6: Radio amateurs in Canada are being asked to name the best of the best for the 2020 induction into the Radio Amateurs of Canada Hall of Fame. If you're one of our Canadian listeners and you know someone who you think deserves a place in the Canadian Amateurs' Radio Hall of Fame, now's your chance to make it happen. Radio Amateurs of Canada is accepting nominations until the end of September, and the trustees of the hall are looking for hams who have performed great service to amateur radio in Canada over a sustained period of time. All nominations should include biographic information about the nominee and three references the Radio Amateurs of Canada prefers nomination documents via email in PDF format, but will have also accept those delivered by regular mail. All nominations are required to be kept confidential, which means you can't tell anyone you're nominating them, nor can you ask their permission. Simply go to the Hall of Fame webpage and download the nomination form to get started. You can find it at wp.rac.ca forward slash carhoff which is spelled C-A-R-F-O-F for the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame. The deadline is the last business day of September.
3: Australian Foundation-class licensees attempting to swap call signs under a new plan are encountering delays. Foundation licensees may now shed their seven-character call signs for standard six-character call signs. Australian regulator ACMA announced the change in July. Its contractor, the Australian Maritime College, has been unable to meet the overwhelming demand, so processing times have been extended. The Wireless Institute of Australia reports that it is updating its publicly available callsign database to match the new callsign template.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
7: What is a GPU and how does it work next? And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. And it really uh, takes a little bit of history to explain why we even have graphics cards. In the early days of computers, remember it was a green screen with text on a black background, uh, or maybe a amber text on a black background, Uh the graphics could be stored in a small amount of memory, and each, me- each part of the memory, each cell of the memory, just had that area of the screen, which really was the size of a character. So you'd stick a T in that uh, cell, and a T would show up on the screen. That was called a frame buffer, and in those days, that's all you needed. Although there was some pretty clever engineering, if you ever want to Uh, find some fun stuff to talk about, study up on how Woz built the frame buffer on the original Apple One. It was sheer genius. He had to do it with as few chips as possible to keep costs down, and he did some amazing things. Uh, Nowadays, we've come a little bit farther. Obviously, we're not just putting characters on a green screen. We're putting beautiful, vivid, realistic graphics, and that's why we now have something called graphics cards or graphics processors on our computer these are chips that are dedicated to drawing graphics up on the screen they'll also have a dedicated area of memory much like that original frame buffer but a lot bigger and with the capability of displaying not just characters but dots of color and more so all computers have to do this. Now that we have graphic user interfaces, not text-based interfaces, as soon as we went to GUIs, um, a computer had to have a way of drawing onto the screen, drawing those graphics onto the screen, and even today, most computers, that's built into the chip set that the computer is using. It's part of the processor. Um, on your phone, it's a special dedicated area of the processor. On Even on motherboards of many computers, it's built into the system on a chip that's in that computer. We call that sometimes motherboard graphics or built-in graphics. But if you want To play more graphically intensive games, if you want more sophisticated on-screen graphics, you'll move to what we call discrete graphics or a dedicated graphics processing unit. A GPU as compared to the CPU, which is the brains of your computer, they work together. The CPU will calculate what should be on the screen, send that information to the GPU, which then has the responsibility of rendering it. GPUs have special chips built into them that are designed specifically for displaying graphics. Things like the capability of moving big chunks of memory in one instruction and short instructions around on the screen. Uh, Special processors for doing the math that needs to be done to calculate uh, edges so that they can be smooth instead of staggered. Most graphics processors units think in geometric terms called voxels or little triangles instead of dots and they map those triangles onto objects do a lot of sophisticated calculations. So, really, a graphics processor on a computer has two main functions it has special chips designed for doing the high end mathematics required to render the graphics, and then extra memory used for storing those graphics before they're blasted onto the screen. So typically what happens is you have a frame buffer that is built by the graphics processor, and then a command puts it on the screen. That's what you see while another frame is generated, and then blasted on the screen, another frame is generated. And that happens 60, 120 times, sometimes even more often per second to give you fluid animation. It's really an amazing thing. Our graphics processors are so good at math that they're often used for other math-intensive uh, things like artificial intelligence. NVIDIA, which is one of the big manufacturers of graphics, uh, or designers of graphics chips, does has a whole uh, auto division where they do smart cars. They do intelligent auto assist for driving. And all of that's using the same kind of processors, but the math is different but sort of similar. So these this intense capability, this mathematical capability can be used in a lot of other ways, machine learning, artificial intelligence. GPUs are often done used by computers when you're editing video and there's a lot of processing that needs to be done to the video. The GPU is a much more efficient way of doing mass operations on large areas of memory, things like that. You always will have on any graphics operating system you use today, you will have a dedicated part of that system that just does graphics it may not be a separate chip it may not be separate memory but you'll always have that uh, on a higher end system where you want better performance you'll even have a dedicated card or a dedicated area dedicated chips dedicated memory just for the graphics processing unit nowadays Everybody's got a GPU. It's just how powerful your GPU is. I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to keep it at a basic level. It's designed to do all that fancy mathematics that are involved with putting graphics up on the screen. That's basically what a GPU does. Uh, Let's see, what else can we talk about? I'm curious if you've noticed any improvement in uh, spam calls, robocalls, all of that. Supposedly, it's been taken care of, and I think it kind of has. Now, get ready, because the silly season is upon us. You may, may remember a couple of years ago, and four years ago, and six years ago, when uh, you know all the campaigns spun up, and you would get calls every day from the political campaigns and so forth. My guess is, at least it's been my experience, I'm curious if it's yours, they're not calling as much as they are texting. Now I get texts like crazy, tons of texts. All the time. Many of them panicky. <laughs> like, we need money. We're running out of money. Gotta send us money. A lot, of, a lot of that. You can only laugh. There's no, as far as I know, way to block text. I guess you could say stop. The FCC has uh, implemented this uh, technology called Stir and Shaken, which sounds like a James Bond recipe for a martini, but is in fact what they call a caller I- ID authentication protocol. And they have till June 30th of next year to, to implement it. But I think some of the carriers are already starting to implement it. The idea is when a call is made, it's stirred. (laughs) That is, the originating network attaches authentication information to it. And then when received by the uh, receiving network, could be the same network, could be a different one, it's shaken, which means they verify its it's, uh, it's origination. See, if you're going to do spam robocalls or spam calls of any kind, you don't really... It's the same with spam email. You don't really want anybody to know the real origination because then they could block you. Notice how spammers change their phone number all the time. They usually, these days, try to use your area code, sometimes even your local exchange. So the first digit, six digits are the ones you recognize, which is, I think, designed to make you think maybe it's your kid calling or the kid's school calling or your doctor or somebody you know. You just don't know that number. So they're hoping you'll pick up and then it goes, you've just won a trip to nowhere. <laughs> Where are they going? Maybe that's what's killing them. There's also most of the carriers now are implementing uh, spam blocking technology. I know T-Mobile just turned theirs on. And I've been using for some time. Apple has a feature, which I like on the iPhone. I think that you can do this on Android too. I seem to remember. Where you say, if, I, if that phone call is not coming from a number I know, it's not from my phone book, just send it to voicemail. You know, and if it's important, they'll leave a message, and then you can add them to your phone book if you want to hear from them from now on. I like that feature. So my phone hardly rings anymore. But then I'm also, I'm not a big phone caller either. I prefer other means of communication, mostly none. Don't bother me, and I won't bother you. How about that? What's that? Is that a deal? (laughs) Okay. I call my mom once a week. She's hard to get a hold of now. I say, Mom, you want to FaceTime? Because we usually FaceTime. That's the other thing. I don't use a phone as much as I'll use FaceTime or on the Google side Duo, or of course, we're all using Zoom and Meet and Teams and all the different video calling things. That's not really a phone call. That's, you know, that's like a data connection. I feel like it's close to a phone call. It's a phone call plus, phone call with pictures. I feel like the call screening has gotten good now. Remember spam email was such a problem? It's not gone away. Still, the vast majority of internet email traffic is, is spam, is junk mail. But the systems to block it have gotten so good now that you just rarely see it anymore, right? Most of the spam I see is stuff I signed up for, or newsletters I signed up for. Or maybe I, you know, when I gave them I signed up for something and I gave my address and they said, you, "You you want to get stuff from us," and I forgot to say no, and it's mostly that. We call it bacon. It's spam you asked for. Is bacon. <laughs> if you get spam you didn't ask for, that's spam. Definitely spam. Not related to Hormel's pork shoulder product that Hormel people would like me to mention that. They actually allow us to use the term spam. At first, they were like, that's our brand name for a product. Can you not call junk mail spam? For a while, we called it uses. That's a terrible name. U-C-E, unsolicited commercial email. Oos oos. I got some oose today. Yeah, it's, no, spam, it just works. Hormel finally gave up. and said, all right, fine. <laughs> call it spam, but just don't confuse it with our fine pork shoulder product. So I won't, I won't. It's delicious. It's not like junk email at all. Not in any respect. <clears throat> so it's gotten better, hasn't it? This, the junk calls. Now I just get a lot of junk texts. They haven't got a solution for that yet. You know where spam came from, right? Monty Python. <clears throat> if you ever want to, you can go, if you want some fun, go to YouTube. If you haven't seen it in the spam skit where the they're, they're coming to breakfast and uh, everything's got spam in it. <laughs> a lot of spam spam just takes over the whole skit pretty soon the singers come on saying "Spamity spam wonderful spam that's the hormel pork shoulder product they're talking about there but somebody said you know it's just like the junk email that it multiplies so they call it spam and a, a term was born anyway i'm glad you were here and i'm here and i'll be here next week and i hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech leo laporte the tech guy
8: are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
8: For the FCC, 1978 started off not with a bang, but rather a ban. On January 1, 1978, the FCC banned the sale of older 23-channel CB sets, which did not meet the tougher type acceptance specifications of the new 40-channel units. Anticipating this deadline, manufacturers had been dumping the older radios at fire sale prices. In particular, the crystal-controlled 3- and 6-channel CB rigs were being sold new for as little as $10. This was a bonanza for hams looking for an inexpensive alternative to 2-meter FM. With 10-meter crystals installed, a CB radio could be realigned for 28 MHz operation in less than 20 minutes. Hundreds of amateurs, myself included, snapped up these unwanted CB sets and converted them to 10 meters. Throughout 1978, 73 Magazine ran a series on various 11-meter radios and how to get them tuned up on 10. Unfortunately, hams never set up a standardized 10-meter band plan. As a result, each area had their own local calling channels, and the concept fizzled out after a few years. Speaking of bans, the FCC, in 1978, adopted rules which prohibited the marketing of amplifiers capable of operation between 24 and 35 MHz. They also imposed a type acceptance program on amplifiers operating below 144 MHz. The AWRL had vigorously opposed these actions, to no avail. Catalogs, like the one from Lafayette Radio, were full of ads for amplifiers designed for operation between 15 and 6 meters. Although these were ostensibly amateur units, they were designed for a 5-watt AM input and were styled to match the company's 11-meter radios. The FCC saw through the charade and imposed their rather draconian measures in order to cut down on illegal high-powered CB operations, particularly in the 10.5-meter band, between 27.4 and 28 MHz. On March 24, 1978, the FCC announced that all prior call sign policies and procedures, written or unwritten, are canceled and hereby replaced. No longer would there be any specific call signs or secondary station licenses. Instead, the FCC implemented the four-group call sign system, which continues to this day. For years, technicians had been denied access to the full 2 meter band. They had obtained 145 through 147 MHz way back in 1959, 147 through 148 MHz in 1972, and 144.5 through 145 MHz in 1977. At the beginning of 1978, technicians were still banned from the 144.0 through 144.5 megahertz segment. Ever since 1969, the ARRL had asked the FCC to give them the full 2-meter band. Finally, on May 15, 1978, the FCC said yes. In addition, they allowed technicians and generals back into the 6-meter segment between 50.0 and 50.1 MHz, which had been taken away from them in 1968 as part of incentive licensing. At last, technicians and generals had full privileges above 50 MHz. However, general class hams still had one more fight. They were banned from using slow scan TV on 75 through 15 meters. That was a fight that would be won another day. For those technicians itching to utilize their full 2 meter privileges... Manufacturers were introducing new synthesized transceivers. Radios such as Clegg's FMDX and FM28, the Midland 13510, the Pace Communicator 2, the Geneve GTX800, the Heathkit HW2036A, and the KDK FM2015R liberated hams from the confining world of 12 channels and opened up the entire 2 meter band. To exploration in 805 kilohertz steps. Late in the year, Henry Radio introduced the Tempo S1, a synthesized 2 meter, 1.5 watt handheld. The average price of these radios was about $350 or $1,100 in today's inflation adjusted dollars. There was some good news for those amateurs who couldn't afford or didn't need an expensive synthesized rig the prices on discontinued crystal-controlled 2-meter radios fell by 60% or more as dealers made room for the new, synthesized units. Unfortunately, crystal-controlled rigs were the only items with falling prices. The U.S. was locked into double-digit inflation, and the AWRL warned that the $12 membership dues would probably have to be increased. Otherwise, the league was doing fine. Membership was 165000 which was about half the number of the 330,000 hams. Incidentally, the AWRL's membership today is also 165,000, but there are almost 700,000 hams. League membership has dropped from 50% to 25%. The big news towards the end of 1978 was NBVM. NBVM? That stands for narrow band voice modulation. A description of this mode is quite technical, but in summary, on FM, a frequency compander compressed the signal bandwidth on transmit and expanded the signal bandwidth on receive. For AM, an amplitude compander compressed the signal amplitude on transmit and expanded the signal amplitude on receive. The result was a significant reduction in the transmitted bandwidth, less co-channel interference, and an improved signal-to-noise ratio. FCC tests showed that a signal 40 dB stronger and only 2 kHz away would not cause harmful interference to the received signal. It featured a 1300 Hz bandwidth, which was one-half that of sideband, one-fourth of AM, and one-tenth of FM. Despite the apparent advantage of NBVM, it never took off in the amateur community. Perhaps NBVM failed because, at the end of 1978, hams were preoccupied with WARC-79. No, that's not an FM translator call sign. It stood for the World Administrative Radio Conference, which would take place in 1979. Amateurs were optimistic, yet concerned. In our next installment, we will look at WARC-79, so until then, tune up your amplitude and frequency companders and explore that new 2-meter band. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in amateur radio.
0: We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts.
4: This is the ARRL propagation forecast for Friday, August 21st. Of the two sunspots we reported last week, only one remains and it will rotate out of view within a few days. As a result, the solar flux index has dipped back to calmer levels, so expect mediocre conditions on the upper HF bands. There's a blast of solar wind on the way and it could shake things up a little bit by early next week. On VHF and UHF, if you live in the upper Midwest, be on the lookout for band openings on two meters and up. We have a large mass of atmospheric instability that's causing a lot of activity from Kansas north to Minnesota. This area is expected to slide into Michigan, Ohio, and Kentucky during the week to come. In satellite news, Bruce Page, KK5DO, reports that AMSAT is continuing to proceed with the building and launch for the GOLF series of CubeSats. GOLF-T has an expected launch date no earlier than the first quarter of 2021. GOLF-1 is expected to launch no earlier than the fourth quarter of that year. GOLF-T stands for Technology Exploration Environment. Besides building on the Fox family of satellites, GOLF will add two additional tests to be done in order to take the GOLF family to higher orbits and thus a higher footprint. The first is the Attitude, Determination, and Control System. This will be tested to allow active pointing of the satellite's antennas. This is called nadir pointing, where the antenna always points to the Earth. The second edition is a deployable solar array, which will allow significantly greater power to be generated than is possible with solar cells
3: attached to the sides of a small spacecraft. The 23rd International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend takes place this weekend. The two-day event begins at 0001 UTC on August 22nd and continues until 2400 UTC on August 23rd. Each year, participants set up portable stations at, or as close as possible to, lighthouses and lightships around the world. This year's event is a week later than usual to avoid on-the-air activities marking the 75th anniversary of victory in the Pacific during World War II. The impact of the pandemic has failed to dampen the enthusiasm of 340 registered participants in 43 countries, said International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend Coordinator Kevin Mulcahy, VK2CE. Last year, 426 registered. There have been some cancellations due to changes in lockdown rules, but it is great to see so many weathering the storm, said Mulcahy, who inherited the job of running this year's event from the event's founder, Mike Dalrymple, GM4SUC. International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend guidelines regarding proximity to a lighthouse or lightship have been relaxed slightly to suit the local situation. But, Mulcahy says, the station should still be within, say, 1,000 yards and in sight of the lighthouse. Some lighthouse and lightship stations operate with special event call signs. Participation from home or clubs is encouraged, even if only to offer support for those who have made the effort to set up at or near a lighthouse, Mulcahy said. Hopefully 2021 will see some kind of normality return to the planet. Condolences to those who have been forced to cancel operating from a lighthouse precinct and sincere thanks and admiration to those who will be activating a lighthouse or lightship over the weekend. The number listed is far more than we originally expected.
4: In DX News, the Japan Telecommunications Ministry announced that effective August 20th, All stations permitted to transmit on Japan's 160-meter allocation may not use SSB. Australian Telecommunications Regulator, ACMA, has approved the issuance of 2-by-1 contest call signs with VJ, VK, and VL prefixes. These call signs are available to advanced class licensees and to club stations for contest operation only, with a limit of one. Despite the civil unrest in Mali, Jeff Dorsey, TZ4AM, reported on August 17th that he was safe and very active on the air. He's been spotted on the low end of 40 and 20 metres and elsewhere.
9: Foundations of Amateur Radio When you start playing with radio, your first interaction is likely to be voice. It could be SSB, AM, FM or something more recent like FreeDV or DMR. Your next challenge is likely going to be a digital mode, like Morse code, Radio Teletype, or my recommendation for your first adventure, Whisper, or Weak Signal Propagation Reporter. I've previously discussed Whisper, today I would like to look at Radio Teletype, or RITI. It's a digital mode that allows you to send and receive freeform text. It's a mode with a long and illustrious history, and it's a good next step after Whisper. The way it works is that using an alphabet made up from two tones, information is transmitted one character at a time at a specific speed. The code that describes the alphabet is called the Bordeaux code, invented by Jean-Maurice-Émile Bordeaux in 1849. In computing terms, it's a 5-bit alphabet, and in amateur radio it's traditionally sent at 45.45 baud, or bits per second. In case you're wondering, named after the very same man. The two tones have names, a mark and a space, and they're a set distance apart. In amateur radio, they're separated by 170 Hz, but there are plenty of other frequencies and speeds in use. In amateur radio, the standard mark and space frequencies are 2125 Hz and 2295 Hz. In a traditional Riti-capable radio, The two tones are generated by transmitting a carrier whilst switching the transmitter frequency back and forth, called Frequency Shift Keying or FSK. Think of it as having a Morse key that sends Dits on one frequency and Dars on another, having the radio change frequency whilst you're keying. If you use this method to create and decode RITI by switching between two frequencies, your radio can generally only deal with one Ritti signal at a time, just the one you're sending and just the one that's being received. Receiving is generally achieved by showing some indication on your radio how close you are to the mark and space frequencies that you're trying to receive and decode. Another way to make a rity signal is to use sound. If you alternately whistle at 2125 Hz and 2295 Hz, and you do it at 45.45 bits per second, you're also generating Ritti. This technique is called Audio Frequency Shift Keying, or AFSK. Think of it as using audio to simulate the shifting of frequency by transmitting two alternating tones. There is a fundamental difference between the two. Before I explain, permit a diversion. It's relevant, I promise. If you've ever spoken on the radio using SSB, you might have noticed that if two stations are transmitting at the same time, you get both signals. With a little practice, you can even understand both. This isn't true for every radio mode. If you use FM, the strongest signal wins, and if you use AM, you get a garbled beep from two stations being on slightly different frequencies. As an aside, this is why aviation uses AM, so any station not transmitting can hear that two stations doubled up. Back to Ritti. If you use audio to generate the two RITI carriers, rather than shift frequency, you can deal with as many as you can fit into an SSB audio signal. As long as the mark and space for each station are 170Hz apart, you can have as many stations as you want, overlapping even. As long as your software knows what to do with that, you'll be able to decode each one at the same time, since they're essentially multiple SSB signals being transmitted simultaneously. An added bonus is that you don't have to invest in an SDR to play with this. You can use an analogue radio, like my FT-857D, and use software to generate an audio RITI signal, with all the benefits I've just mentioned. The magic is in the software you use to do the decoding. As it happens, I'm about to do a contest using RITI, and I'll let you know how that goes, using my radio, a computer, and a piece of software called FLDigi. I'll be following in the footsteps of the first ever Ritty contest, held in the last weekend of October in 1953, and organized by the Ritty Society of Southern California. In as much as I'm following the footsteps of Morse code by spark gap, wish me luck. I'm Ono Victor Kilo Six Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
2: Amateur radio license testing continues during the pandemic, with a combination of remote volunteer examiner test sessions and careful in-person session planning. To show us how careful planning can result in a very successful VE session, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this special report from League Headquarters. In Hawaii, VE
4: Team Leader and Section Manager Joe Speroni, AH0A, said he and his team passed the 100 candidate mark on August 10th for video supervised remote test sessions. Sporoni said the most recent session administered exams to 10 candidates simultaneously. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected licensing numbers as well as testing protocols. ARRLVEC manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, reports that through the end of July, overall FCC license activity is down by 15 percent, compared to the same period last year. New amateur radio licenses are down 12 percent so far in 2020,
2: compared to 2019. Candidates from all Hawaiian islands, Puerto Rico, Guam, and U.S. military bases in Okinawa have had an opportunity to sit for licenses, he told the ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator. The high pass rate of 95% is most likely due to candidates having had time to prepare for the exam. Speroni also said his volunteer examiner's willingness to contribute their time has made the program a success and available to a wide geographical range. Zoom meeting video lends itself to handling three candidates per session, and each requires three volunteer examiners, Speroni explained. The one-to-one ratio of candidates to VEs makes planning important. Fortunately, the team of 15 VEs has volunteers from Oahu, Maui, the Big Island, California, and the Pacific. Often, hams from Okinawa and Guam are helping license and upgrade hams in Hawaii. Speroni said it looks like testing opportunities for Hawaii residents will continue to be needed for a while longer, he explained. Remote video testing is available, and all are welcome to register for a test. The team offers information on how testing is conducted. Upgraded licenses are down by a staggering 23%, 6,501 versus 4,984, Soma said. The year-end prediction of 7,500 upgrades is much lower than in previous years, which have averaged around 9,500. On the other side of the U.S., Rhode Island Section Manager and Volunteer Examiners Bob Bodet, W1YRC, reports his club, the Blackstone Valley Amateur Radio Club, conducted a pandemic compliant test session on August 8th. Our governor in Rhode Island has directed citizens not to congregate in groups greater than 15 outdoors, Bodet said estimating that group size remained at around that number at any given time as candidates arrived and left. Some came early and left as new people arrived, he said. Also, we were rather widely spread out in the parking lot of our Savior's parish Polish National Catholic Church in Woonsocket. Everyone wore masks and observed appropriate social distancing. The VE's grading and processing applications were also spread widely apart, We planned to keep applicants a car-width apart from one another, but many applicants came in rather large trucks, Beaudet recounted. That changed our parking pattern a little. The session accommodated one candidate who was severely vision impaired and successfully upgraded to a general class license, with a VE reading the questions and recording his answers.
0: And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's
10: own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One question I got via email concerning tower-mounted electronics and where to start. Here's what I did on my latest 900 MHz install. Concerning feed lines, I use the 900 MHz band for a one-way link between my recording studio at home and the local repeater for airing this week in amateur radio. Feed line loss at 900 megahertz is horrible unless you intend to spend lots of money on pressurized semi-rigid feed line. One solution to this problem is to mount the electronics on the tower and limit the feed line to, say, two or three feet. It's easy to run 115 volts AC up the tower. Make sure the wires you choose to install are the outdoor type with three wires... Also check with the tower owner to be sure it's legal to do so. Probably, any lighted or registered tower would require you to to run the power wires through conduit. Actually, running conduit on a tower is rather easily since it's generally in a straight line. Okay, so you've installed the power to the place where you intend to mount the electronics and antenna. Your next job is to find a suitable cabinet. If your space requirements are small, like the size of a small HF rig, you're in luck. For those needing to obtain and tower mount a larger cabinet... Here's how I handled a couple of those projects. First, we gathered all the equipment to be put in the cabinet on the tower and arranged it to take up minimal space but allow sufficient cooling airflow. Then we located a cabinet that came close to the size and height and width. I took it to a local welding shop and had them cut all the way around the outside, splicing five inches of steel to make it deeper. After the bill was paid, I sealed it with silicone and paint and tested it with a water hose for a watertight seal. I did install two drain holes in the bottom just in case. For smaller projects, marine battery cases work well for housing tower-mounted electronics. You'll need a mounting bracket of some sort and some holes in the box, but they're cheap and durable. Hamfests are good places to look to pick up plastic boxes for outside mounting. I found several with molded-in nuts for mounting, clear plastic doors with key locks for real cheap. My favorite two words. Some common mounting devices for electronics on the tower are hose clamps, antenna U-bolts, most brass screws and nuts, as well as custom-made brackets from scrap steel. If you live in an area with a large industrial area, try to get to know someone that works as an industrial electrician who can help you scrounge old steel electrical cabinets, scrap steel, wire, and other hardware. Most of my best outdoor installations were made from old control cabinets destined for the scrap steel bin or the landfill. And while you're building your tower-mounted box, be sure to consider how to safely put it on the tower and gain access to it. Remember, money spent on books and videos relating to tower safety is always money well spent. Invest in your safety soon. Don't be a statistic. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio.
0: We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify.
2: A United States Court of Appeals judge has declared that the Federal Communications Commission can preempt an estimated $2 billion in local fees that would have been imposed on wireless carriers and their 5G networks. Dozens of cities went to court to try and block a previous vote by the FCC that favored such carriers as AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon. Major cities around the U.S. sued the FCC following the vote, but the recent decision by the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit upholds most of the FCC's actions. Judges did overturn part of the agency's ruling that sought to restrict what cities and towns can impose on the carriers regarding the aesthetics of their setups. The cities losing the case included Washington, D.C., Boston, New York City, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and San Francisco, along with Portland, Oregon, and Austin, Texas.
9: Amateur Radio. It's not all just dids and dars, although that's the way it started. MF, HF, VHF, UHF, SHF, AM, Sideband, FM, television, digital stuff, you name it, there's something for anyone who's interested in techie things.
1: And finally this week, an update to a story we told you about last week. An incredible number of digital mode radio signals occupy the spectrum, and it's not always possible to identify the particular mode of operation. CW, PSK31, and FT8 are pretty easy, but how about CIS405, or STANAG, or CHIP64? A new smartphone app can simplify things. Signal ID can currently recognize about 20 signal modes and more may be on the way in just 5 seconds of recording time. The app is open source and free. Using it is simple. Once the frequency and the bandwidth have been set, the user places the cell phone's microphone near the receiver's speaker, presses the large button, and waits for 5 seconds. The quieter the external environment is, the fewer errors. The algorithm is based on frequency, so incorrect tuning will result in an erroneous detection. The recording is limited to five seconds for practical reasons. Mode recognition may require several attempts, the developer Tortillium said, and upgrades are already in the works. The easiest way to try it is with RIDI or S-T-A-N-A-G, the developer added. The very few comments so far from users suggest some further work may be needed, but they praised the concept. The developer invites additional comments. The application, which includes a complete list, could prove a valuable tool in determining the types of emissions that may stray into the amateur radio bands. A demonstration video is available. This Week in
0: Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the tri-cities of New York State's capital region.
7: This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates, Incorporated. Now, for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This week in amateur radio is copyright,
10: Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.